This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Bose, maker of the new Bose Frames Tempo, high-performance sports sunglasses that deliver high-quality audio. Science has shown that if you want to be a better athlete, you need to go from training that sounds like this to training that sounds like this. Thanks to the revolutionary Bose Open Ear Audio Design, the Bose Frames Tempo lets you listen to your music without headphones, so you stay aware of your surroundings, no matter what you come across when you're exercising outside. Two specially designed speakers embedded in the temples produce sound that's loud and deep. An advanced microphone system focuses on your voice and reduces the sound of wind and other noises, so you can have clearer conversations. And the battery lasts for up to eight hours on a charge. The lightweight nylon frames are sweat and weather resistant and feature soft silicon nose pads for a more comfortable fit. Plus, interchangeable polarized lenses crafted for specific light conditions. The Bose Frames Tempo, designed for sports, engineered for sound. Learn more about how they can elevate your run or ride at Bose.com. That's B-O-S-E.com. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. For a lot of men who deal with eating disorders, it's very taboo for men to be vulnerable and to talk about body image because it's seen as a a female problem. We went to a bagel shop in the morning on our way to a local crag up there. I ordered two bagels with cream cheese, and he just made some offhand comment like, oh, you're never going to get up any of the roots after you eat those. That was Kai Leitner and Beth Rodden, two high-profile professional rock climbers speaking about their experience with eating disorders, an issue that has rarely been addressed within the sport. To become an elite climber, you need to become very good at defying gravity. This requires developing extraordinary control of your body while also maximizing your strength to weight ratio. To do that, you train constantly and pay attention to your diet. At the upper echelons of the sport, where every move counts, there is pressure on athletes to do all that they can to make themselves stronger while also getting smaller and lighter. For Kai and Beth, that pressure led them to develop eating disorders. Beth was a major figure in traditional climbing in the early 2000s, as she helped push the discipline forward. Kai is a top sport climber who's currently active in competitions. But while they come from different eras, they faced similar challenges. Both of them recently wrote essays for Outside about their hard times and their recovery. And for today's episode, Outside assistant editor Marin Larson spoke to them about their stories. A heads up, because this episode discusses eating disorders, it may not be for everyone. Here's Marin. Let's start with Beth. Uh, My name is Beth Rodden, and I am a professional rock climber. Beth is perhaps best known for her 2008 first ascent of Meltdown, a 514C fingertip crack in Yosemite that has yet to be repeated. She also completed the second free ascent of the infamous nose route on Yosemite's El Capitan with her former husband, Tommy Caldwell. She started climbing in the mid-90s. 
When I was probably about 14 years old, my dad just took me to the local climbing gym where I grew up in Northern California. And like most people that get hooked on something, I just, I was captivated right away. So that was the end of that. What captivated you about climbing? I had always participated in organized sports. And back then when I started climbing, there were no teams or coaches or, you know, directions that you had to do. So it kind of really ignited the self-drive that I had in me. With no formal structure to the sport, Beth had to push herself to get better. She took to it immediately. Probably the biggest thing was just the physical movement of climbing has always just felt so natural to me and it just feels good on my body. She was also drawn to the tight-knit climbing community in Northern California. Less than a year after she started climbing, some guys from the gym took her to the local crag. That's when she was teased for ordering those two bagels, which you heard at the top of the episode. She ate her bagels that day, but the comments left a mark. They were much more experienced and much better climbers than I was at the time, and they knew the ins and outs of the sport. So just kind of like, oh, if that's how they think, and if that's what makes them better, then perhaps that's what would make me better. It planted a seed that then definitely grew, and it, it changed my behavior for you know the years and honestly decades to come. Soon, Beth began to believe that her success as a climber depended on limiting what she ate. Within the first year of me starting to climb, I started to limit what I put into my body. My rationale back then was, you know, it's a strength to weight ratio sport. And so if you weigh less, then that's going to help you. I didn't ever think, oh, maybe I should just get stronger. Across outdoor sports, it's common for athletes to watch what they eat very closely to improve performance. But there is a line between health consciousness and unhealthy control. And sometime in her teens, Beth crossed it. She had always been small, but her drive to succeed pushed her to eat less and train to an extreme. Likely as a result of her body being deprived of nutrients, she didn't get her period until she was almost 20. Meanwhile, the sport kept encouraging her to push her body to its limits. I was rewarded for climbing the hardest things I could and, and pushing the sport forward. You work really hard and you set a big goal and then you achieve it and you get all these outside accolades and you feel really good about yourself and you probably get a raise from your sponsor. And then after not doing anything for a little while after that, you feel really bad about yourself and go back and try and go even bigger and push yourself harder and not have the healthiest relationship with your sport. And for me, that meant with my body. Along with the pressure to perform as a climber, Beth was also grappling with how she was being asked to present her body to the media. Women athletes have always been portrayed differently in the industry, and as she and Tommy Caldwell became better known in the sport, Beth was increasingly aware of the stark differences in the ways that they were treated. There would be a lot of times where we'd be on a photo shoot and the photographer would ask me to take off my shirt and, you know, climbing a lot of these things, you do it in the cold for the best friction, right? So it would be freezing and I would be up there in a sports bra and then Tommy could leave on his his shirt because they didn't need to see like a bare man's body. In her 20s, Beth was at the peak of her career. She was completing first ascents and first female ascents of some of the hardest traditional climbs in the world. But at the same time, she was physically falling apart. I was rewarded the most for the hardest I could send, no matter if that was meaning that my body was breaking down. I had a, probably five years of a string of debilitating injuries. And looking back, I can't help but think that me limiting and manipulating what I put into my body affected you know, my body's ability to heal from injuries in a normal amount of time. Because if you don't fuel your body correctly, it's gonna start breaking down on you. 
Beth never sought treatment for her eating disorder. Instead, she suffered through her injuries and limped on, feeling far away from the days when she climbed because it felt like what her body was made to do. I came like desperately close to stopping climbing because I just, I didn't see a point in it anymore. But things would get better. In 2009, she and Tommy Caldwell divorced. She began a relationship with a man, now her husband, who was a serious but non-professional climber. He slept in, he ate what he wanted. Beth started to see that there was more to life than just climbing hard. So she went back to the basics. And I just started climbing at a very elementary level and realized like how fun that was. This was a big step towards building a healthier relationship with her sport. But the real change to how she saw her body didn't come until four years later when she got pregnant with her son. It's a full-on, at least for me, surrender of control over your body. You know, I lived my life for nearly 20 years being able to, I felt like I had like the tightest grip on, on how my body was to perform and how it was to look. And all of a sudden, at least I couldn't just do that with pregnancy, you know? I feel like the pregnant body is so celebrated. I got so many compliments. It's like, oh, your belly, you look so beautiful. And then as soon as I had our son, it was kind of like, so what's your next project? And how fast are you going to lose the baby weight? And, you know, it's like, it's time to like pack up and apologize for the inconvenience. Shortly after her son was born, Beth saw a picture of a professional runner who had just had two kids back to back. It was such a nice thing to see because here she was in her racing uniform, which was a sports bra and those short, tight runner shorts. And she had this saggy skin on her stomach and she was out there doing it. Just like when she was warned against eating carbs when she was 14, nearly two decades earlier, that image planted a seed. It wasn't for a handful of more years till I really started accepting my body, but I feel like the more you can see that type of image, the more you can hear about it, the more somebody talks to you about it, it's just that much more reinforcing. It just took little mentions here and there for me to start manipulating my body for performance. And it just took little mentions here and there for me to unlearn those same things. A couple years after her son was born, Beth was on a climbing trip with her family in Europe when she realized that even though she weighed more, even though her stomach was sagging, even though she didn't get to the crag until noon because she had a toddler in tow, she was sending routes that had eluded her a decade earlier. And it struck her that her logic about what her body could do was all wrong. You don't have to be pencil thin and you don't have to have this completely unhealthy relationship with climbing to actually climb hard. You can look like a normal person and, you know, have curves and your stomach is stretched out because you housed a human for nine months. It was so much nicer and easier to appreciate my body <laughs> instead of fight against it. I was just so much happier and, and it really made me question like why I was doing that in the first place. She also realized that she had to set a good example for her son. On that trip also, we went to Switzerland at some point and it was so hot. And it was kind of crowded at this area and I wanted to try this climb, but I thought, oh, if I could just take off my t-shirt, it would just be so much more comfortable and just climb in a sports bra. But I had never done that since having our son because my stomach looks different. And I was you know, playing with my son in between climbs and I just thought, screw it. I don't want him to think that you have to cover up your body. Beth had struggled with her eating disorder for the majority of her life, and those destructive patterns were deeply embedded. 
had grown to know my body in one way, and that was to use it to accomplish really hard things. And it was like that unlearning that, oh wait, my body is to be appreciated and nurtured in so many ways and climbing can be celebrated too. It just doesn't have to be this one path. I didn't start climbing to be the best and, and push the sport forward. I started climbing because it was fun. So it was kind of like unlearning back to square one. She believes that raising a new generation of climbers with a healthier outlook starts at the very beginning. When I was a young climber, I just devoured anything climbing, right? Like I would wait for Outside Magazine to come every month. I would wait for the climbing magazines to come every month. And I would just like, you know, be absorbed in it. And I'd watch every climbing video. So I do, I feel like representation really does matter. Beth has come a long way. When she was pushing the boundaries of what was possible as a climber, her relationship to the sport could have been described as borderline abusive. But now, after years of recovery and relearning, that relationship has never been healthier. I'm much less desperate for it. I think before I'd go into our shed and and train and I couldn't feel good about myself unless I left completely obliterated and, you know, totally exhausted from training. And now I'll be in there and I'll be like, oh, that kind of hurt my shoulder or it's dinner time. We got to go eat. It's time to go and climbing will always be there later today or tomorrow. When we come back, we'll talk to a climber from the next generation, Kai Leitner, about how the culture has changed since Beth started climbing in the early 90s and how it hasn't. At the top of the episode, we spoke about the new Bose Frames Tempo, high-performance sports sunglasses that deliver high-quality audio without headphones. Research has shown that listening to music while exercising doesn't just make your training more fun. It makes you a better athlete by improving your mood, lowering your perceived exertion level, and accelerating your performance. But don't just take it from scientists. Take it from real athletes. It just gives me energy. Like, your cadence of your run is just, I think music is meant to go with that. This is Jane Galvin, director of music for Electric Flight Crew, a running club that synchronizes workouts in cities across the country with shared playlists. I love, you know, more upbeat kind of techno that maybe isn't everyone's favorite, but the beats per minute really counts. These days, Jandas are running on the streets of L.A., and oversees the creation of Electric Flight Crew's weekly playlists. She can't imagine why anyone would run without music. Running is really hard, and I do think music is really what can, like, carry you through. It's just so powerful. The Bose Frames tempo makes your music especially powerful, with speakers in the temples that produce a sound that's louder and deeper, so you can feel the music, even over the rush of the wind, when moving at speeds of 25 miles an hour. But with no headphones, you can also hear what's going on around you. The scratch and shatter-resistant polarized lenses are ideal for most outdoor sports, and the aerodynamic nylon frames are so light and comfortable, you'll forget that they're even there. The Bose Frames Tempo is the sound you expect from Bose, with everything you need from sports sunglasses. Learn more at Bose.com. Kai Leitner doesn't fit the mold of a stereotypical climber. For one thing, he's black, and he's also very tall, six foot three, in a sport historically dominated by people under six feet. He's 21 years old, part of a new generation of climbers brought up in a culture of plentiful climbing gyms and highly competitive coaching and teams. He's been climbing in one form or another since he was a toddler. 
I had a long history of doing unofficial first ascents, like on the side of buildings or apartment balconies. I was just always climbing things that had no business, from baby gates before I could walk, to eating lunch on basketball hoops, and one day I decided to climb the 50-foot flagpole in front of the school, and a lady walked by and saw me up there and helped me down and wrote the address to the local climbing gym on a sticky note. And she gave it to my mom and said I should try rock climbing. And honestly, it was like love at first sight. This was in Fayetteville, North Carolina, when he was six years old. I had never heard of climbing as being a sport. I grew up in an inner city community, and I had never been exposed to much outdoor recreation in general. And so when I heard about climbing and I heard that people climbed on mountains, I thought that that was kind of scary. Kai fell in love with the climbing gym. But from the very beginning, he felt different. There were absolutely no other black people in the gym. I don't know if I could really vocalize that as a kid, but I definitely felt it where I was like, do I belong here? And when I would bring my passion to my classmates, a lot of them looked at me like I was funny. and Like nobody else does that. We should do a sport that other people do that's normal. He stuck out in other ways, too. He was always bigger than the other kids, and his coaches made sure that he knew it. Even as a kid, I was always taller than all of my other competitors. I was pretty stocky as a kid as well. And so my coaches would tell me that I needed to work on not only climbing smaller, but being smaller. Coaches would take away his snacks, make comments about his size or his stomach, and even make him walk around the gym with his shirt off to build character, they said. I realized how different I looked from other kids in my age, other people that were in the gym who climbed at a similar level to me. And I also looked at a lot of the people who I aspired to be like, whether it was at the top of my sport nationally or internationally, and all of them fit a certain mold of being between 5'6", five, 5'8", five, like muscular, really small. I was always just taught how, how to be a smaller climber because I knew that the setting and the movement were going to be created for climbers shorter than me. It wasn't long before Kai started to monitor his weight, believing that being smaller was key to winning at competitions. When he was about 13, he moved from Youth C to Youth B, the level at which climbers are able to compete in international competitions. The pressure to lose weight increased. And so I started eating less, exercising more, and I don't really know if I noticed that I was getting into a bad cycle. It was more so like, if I'm losing weight, that means I must be doing something right. When you're a taller athlete, you're going to be carrying more weight naturally because your, your physique's going to be bigger, your bones are going to be heavier. My numbers are always going to be higher than my competitors. It was unhealthy for me to try to keep up a number that was consistent with my competitors. Like, I, I wasn't going to weigh 100 pounds. But in my brain, I needed to be 100 pounds because all my competitors were 100 pounds. Within the year, Kai's mother started to notice that something was different. My mother's a single parent, and we've always been kind of two-piece in a pod. She belays me, she cooks my meals, helps me with my homework. And so because she's always there, she is the first person who's going to notice when some of my habits are off, because she's always seeing me. She was noticing that I wasn't eating meals all the time, or that I was over-exercising, or that I was hyper-focused on my training. She started keeping an eye on my numbers, and I wasn't really telling the truth about how much I weighed. Skipping meals, over-exercising, and being secretive about food and weight are all common warning signs of an eating disorder. And so one day, my mom picked me up from school and told me that we were going to go home, but I noticed that we weren't driving home. We eventually show up to a pediatrician, where my mom brought me out and told me that she had set up an appointment for me and I didn't have a choice but to go in. 
my vitals were checked and it turns out that my liver was very close to failure and they told me that if I didn't fix my eating habits that I probably was going to have liver failure and have serious health complications. In the preceding 18 months, Kai had grown 5 inches, but actually lost weight. And so I definitely wasn't healthy, but I thought that me being smaller meant that I was doing something right. In some ways, Kai was lucky. Unlike Beth, his eating disorder was caught early. But despite his mother's quick action, recovery would not be easy. Even though he knew his life depended on letting himself gain weight, every pound was an uphill mental battle. Psychologically, when I started gaining weight, it was like, okay, if I'm gaining weight, that means I must be climbing worse. And so I started feeling worse. I started having a lot of doubts about my physical ability, whether I'd be prepared for competition, whether I'd be prepared for an outdoor project. And it was a really big thing for me to get over. I think that even to this day, I am much healthier and much more mindful of how strong I am. But I still have little doubts that will creep up in my head, like, am I too heavy to climb on these holds? Recently, as Kai started talking publicly about his experience, he was surprised at the response he got, particularly from men with similar stories. For a lot of men, that's just a really hard conversation to have, and so they don't really get the help that they need, and the problem just continues to be perpetuated. The damaging beliefs about weight and food that Kai and Beth and many other climbers have been exposed to are deeply embedded in the culture of the sport. This is despite the fact that these beliefs are not based in evidence. One of the things that is unfortunate about climbing is that a lot of the training methods and a lot of the beliefs on how to be a successful athlete in our sport are based upon tradition and not science because there hasn't been a lot of money and funding and research has gone into athletic bodies in our sport. It's so easy to visualize being smaller equating to success than it is to actually sit down and do the homework and realize that there are smarter, better methods. But Kai does believe that change is coming. And so now that climbing is an Olympic sport, I think that it's a perfect opportunity for us to do more research with young bodies, with adult bodies, and see how to best maximize our athleticism. Along with improving research, Kai says that the culture of the sport has to change. And that starts with the coaches. Coaches need to have healthier practices on how they cultivate young talent and not focusing so much on comparing the young athletes to other young athletes because everyone's body and potential is different. It could be so easy for these issues to be swept under the rug. A lot of the time, coaches will see the kids more than, than the parents do. And so, honestly, the coaches are like surrogate parents in themselves. People need to be able to visualize what success looks like for them in any given space. And so if I am a bigger athlete, a shorter athlete, a skinnier athlete, black, Asian, whatever demographic, it's important to me to be able to see people who look like me or have experienced similar situations as me achieve success so I know, okay, this space is welcoming for me and can foster my success. Kai has paved his own way in a sport with few role models who shared his skin color, his body type, or his background. Because of that, he now feels a sense of responsibility to the next generation. Whether it's to black athletes, whether it's to athletes struggle with eating disorder, I feel like I want my impact to be as universal as possible. If you or someone you know may be struggling with an eating disorder, call the National Eating Disorder Association helpline at 1-800-931-2237 or go to nationaleatingdisorders.org. Recovery is possible, and you don't need to do it alone.
That was Marin Larson, speaking with Beth Ronin and Kai Leitner. Marin produced this episode, which was edited by me, Michael Roberts. Our music is by Robbie Carver. You can read Beth and Kai's essays about their struggles with eating disorders on our website, Outside Online. And while you're there, please consider making a contribution to fund the storytelling we do on this show. You can do that at outsideonline.com backslash podcast listener. This episode of the Outside Podcast was brought to you by Bose, maker of the new Bose Frames Tempo, high-performance sports sunglasses that deliver high-quality audio. Learn more at Bose.com. We'll be back next week.